This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, Melbourne United complete the sweep and are crowned NBL champs. The Phoenix Suns take on the Milwaukee Bucks for the Larry O'Brien Trophy. Ale Opi Omi Bang. <laughs> and the usual Grand Slam chaos as Wimbledon enters week two. Back to a normal one this week, Shui. Lots to get through. Let's go. It's quarter to nine on a Tuesday night on the 6th of July. The weather is absolutely abysmal. I saw the light outside shaking. I've seen lightning. Hopefully the power stays on long enough for us, Chewy. Fingers crossed. At least COVID's kind of gone. Yeah, well, we'll (laughs) get to that. Touch wood. We'll get to that, though. But yes, back to our normal show. Hopefully those that listened last week did enjoy it. And we'll have a few more of those coming up pretty soon, too. But as we do at the top every week, what caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, several things caught my attention this week. The first was a pretty farcical incident at the Wimbledon qualifying last week, I should say, involving Indy DeVroom. She kind of sounds like a really fast NASCAR car. She sounds like a character from a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah she really does. Her and Lightning McQueen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the love interest. But anyway, rule number seven of Wimbledon's clothing and equipment instruction states that caps, including the underbill, headbands, bandanas, wristbands and socks must be completely white, except for a small trim of colour no wider than one centimetre. Okay, we get it. There's a lot of tradition there. That's fine. Some people might actually remember going back to 2018, though John Millman had an issue where his underpants were deemed too colourful. (laughs) Okay. So he ended up, his dad had to go and buy some new ones for him, which was absolutely crazy. Jeez. Anyway, Indy was told off because the inside of her cap wasn't white enough. The inside. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Like, come on. Yeah. I've actually seen photos of this. I couldn't even tell that it was any colour aside from white. So I don't know what the umpire was seeing. And the crazy part about all of this is that the umpires don't wear white themselves. They wear all sorts of different colours. So I don't understand how the inside of something is still an issue in this day and age. Well, the other thing is, given how many people pulled out, do you really want to disqualify more for such arbitrary, stupid bullshit? That is exactly how it should be described. Arbitrary (laughs) bullshit. Yeah. Stupid bullshit. Yeah. Well, both. Oh, yeah, all of the above. Anyway, well, I guess it's not arbitrary, is it? It's a rule. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, fine. <laughs> Touche, Wimbledon. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about Wimbledon a bit later on. So secondly, I saw that the T20 Cricket World Cup's now been moved from India to the UAE and Oman of all places. Yeah, yep. A little bit of, bit of cricket coming through Oman. So I guess that'll be nice for them to show off their beautiful country. Thirdly, Fabio Quadraro, after winning the MotoGP in Assen, decided to celebrate by putting a golf ball down on the tarmac and having a swing at it with a driver in his full getup with the helmet and everything. Okay. Scent sparked everywhere. Honestly, he should stick to MotoGP. Yeah. Golf swing is not great. <laughs> the driver using a driver. Yes. Ah. And I'm going to leave you with a bit of a crazy did you know. Walter Morrison, the man who invented the Frisbee in 1955, died in 2010 before being cremated and turned into, you guessed it. A Frisbee. A Frisbee. Oh, nice. How cool is that? That's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. I like it. What got your attention, though? Well, oh God, Stewie, so much as always. The F1's been cancelled in Melbourne. US sprinter Shikari Richardson won't be competing at the Olympics, but for maybe the relay depending on if they decide to let her run based on the 30-day ban. Joey Chestnut broke his own record at the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest with 76 yesterday. Where did you have it this week? Fourth of July. (laughs) No, not me. Not you? Different (laughs) He holds all top 10 spots dating back to 2007. I've watched this guy before. Oh, he's on, yeah. It's insanity. It's, It's crazy. But what I wanted to highlight this week was Shohei Otani, and we've talked about him a few times, but he made MLB history by becoming the first player to be named an all-star at pitcher and as a position player. He's homered off his last seven hits, 
and has 30 home runs, which passed Babe Ruth for most by a player in the Major League Baseball who made at least 10 appearances as a pitcher in the same season. So his absolute purple patch continues. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's amazing. What'd you miss, mate? Well, if I'm honest, I didn't get a chance to watch more than the highlights of the World Test Championship. And considering it was won by Little Brother New Zealand, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of it. Nothing better than seeing a frustrated Virat Kohli. <laughs> so, yeah, look, that would have been nice to, to watch a bit more of. Unfortunately, yeah, things get in the way. What'd you miss, Nate? Well, I must say, I didn't see a hell of a lot of that either. And we will talk about that a little bit too. I forgot to mention a fortnight ago when we had a normal episode that I'll miss Dwight Howard in the playoffs. He's basically become a video game character and not in the sense, you know, they often use the phrase, oh, someone's a video game character when they can't miss. But I mean, in the sense that he's become a caricature of himself. So his get up looks crazy. He has a different hairstyle every game. So in game seven of the Philly Atlanta series, I like to call the wicker basket. But my favorite was the tarantula legs which he was sporting at a Bucks-Hawks game, obviously a native of Atlanta. I've noticed that, him yeah. sitting front row just next to the bench there. Did you yeah. notice his hair? They look like tarantula legs. Yeah, it's not a great look. <laughs> so his playoffs are definitely done unless he decides to sit courtside at an NBA Finals game. Or get, or... Or get traded to Phoenix yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> and that's the first time I've ever said I'll miss Dwight Howard, by the way, because I've never been a huge <laughs> fan. I wanted to also make a clarification based on a fortnight ago's episode when I talked about that duel between Larry Bird and Dominic Wilkins. So I've actually gone back and had a look at it. It was game seven of the 1988 Eastern Conference semis. And as I mentioned, I was surprised that the Hawks didn't reach more conference finals given they had a pretty damn good team. And you were right. The East was bloody strong oh, then too. I mean, we didn't even mention Cleveland, which had some pretty good teams in that period as well. Sure. But Wilkins actually had 47, while Bird only had 34 in that game. The impressive thing was, though, that their battle was basically back and forth from the point where it was 86 all onwards. So they basically just took over the two of them. Bird actually scored 20 in the final quarter to guide the Celtics to a 118 to 116 victory. That was a very impressive battle. And then finally, Amir Culpa from a fortnight ago as well. When I went back and tidied up the timestamps on that episode, I realized that I used the phrase lighthearted straight after you talked about that guy that got a heart attack with absolutely no sense of irony at all. And neither of us actually picked that up. Oh dear. So I do apologize for that uh, faux pas. It's funny the language we use and how we don't, yeah. Yeah. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week, unfortunately, has to go to that crash at the Tour de France. Oh, yeah. I know the bloody hells are kind of supposed to be funny, but occasionally we have to take the time to shake our fist at the idiocy that is the crowd at the Tour de France. I'd be shocked if people haven't seen this yet, but just in case you have been living under a rock, a 30-year-old woman decided to turn her back on the field and hold up a sign that read Ale Omi Opi, which as far as anyone can tell, means go grandpa and granny. Mm. Not competitors in the field, it has to be said. No, we've checked. There's no yeah. one by that name. <laughs> the, the Tunisian <laughs> grandpa and granny. <laughs> like, there's no one there. She was, however, standing way too much on the road. She was hit by German Tony Martin, which caused one of the biggest crashes you will ever see at the event. Oh, it's carnage. 27 riders were treated for serious injuries, ranging from separated shoulders to fractures in both arms to a punctured lung. Oh, gee, I didn't hear that. Yeah, there was a lot of really, really nasty stuff. Wow. Look, we've seen lots of massive crashes over the years, from Giuseppe Guarini colliding with a guy taking a photo in the middle of the road in 1999, Sandy Cassar clipping a dog at high speed in 2007, or Johnny Hoogerland and Juan Antonio Flesher being hit by an opposing team's car 
in 2011. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. It hurtled him into a barbed wire fence. Yeah. Really, really nasty. And wasn't there that, that time there was a guy dressed as like a pope or a cardinal or something that like created? You get a lot of those sorts of people that, yeah. run, that run alongside them. Yeah. And, and usually that is without incident. Okay. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of these ones, you do get these sort of nasty things where they'll just clip something and go A over T. And when, when they're going that fast, a clip is all it takes to cause absolute mayhem. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sort of begs the question, at what point do they need to provide these riders with some form of a duty of care and put up a barricade with a barricade on the other side of it so these people can't get closer? Oh, that's a lot of... Barricades? Well, it's a lot of kilometres. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a hell of a lot of barricades. Yeah, it, it is. It's just, it's hard because there are so many of these areas where everyone is bunched up, yeah. like, like in this instance, and all it takes is one person yeah. to step out or a dog. So many of these dogs are unleashed and sure enough, this is what happens. Yeah. Like I, you can even go back to 2003. This is something that doesn't even involve fans or dogs or anything. It was that hot in one of the sections that the tar on the road melted. I remember that one too, yeah. And this guy, Yosiba Baloki, his wheel basically got caught in it and he flipped and went over on one of these downhill sections. He was chasing Lance Armstrong at the time. Armstrong managed to sort of veer around it and ended up in a field somewhere, but was able to continue. Whereas mm. this guy was going probably about 100 kilometres an hour yep. and just destroyed himself and didn't get back into cycling for a year. So. Wow. Yeah, they've got enough going on without having to contend with other stuff outside of the actual road itself. So for me, I think this is something that they kind of need to look at. Okay, it's a lot of barricades, yes, but how long is it going to take before there's a fatality or someone who's unable to walk ever again or something like that? It's pretty nasty. So they plan on suing her, but they've now withdrawn that. I mean, maybe to dissuade people in the future, maybe they should have sued her. Yeah. Because she bailed. She caused the crash and then she fled. Yeah. And she was a fugitive for, what, five days or something? They finally caught her a couple of days ago. Yeah. There, there is a little bit of a rumbling that she might serve a custodial sentence. They'll still charge her, yeah. So yeah. she may not be fined a stupid amount of money, but she may spend a little bit of time in jail. Yeah. And you're right. Hopefully that is enough of a deterrent that it stops people from doing this because it's all for the sake of a sign that says, go grandma and grandpa. Yeah, yeah. This is not really... Your name. Yeah, it's not really a great sign. Yeah. It's not very clever. It's not, yeah. So there's no real reason. It's not funny. No, it's, well, it's not. So for her utter stupidity causing serious injuries to 27 riders, all I can say is, in fair, bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, Shui, the NBL Grand Final is now complete. Melbourne have won. They are champions. They are very deserving champions. Probably good we did have that week off due to the uh, COVID lockdowns because... We might have been a little bit too salty last week. Do you remember that big head at SciTech where if you put something underneath it, it would be like, I'm hungry. and then you, Salt. Yeah, you'd put a lemon and like, mmm, sour. If you put our podcast last week under that head, I think you would have gone, salty. I think it might have been sweet, to be honest. <laughs> sweet no, Melbourne. No, it would have been very, very salty. But look, we've, we've had enough showers. We've washed all the salt off. We're, <laughs> we, we're good now. Maybe not all. <laughs> well, look, it's been a couple of weeks. The sting's kind of worn off a little bit. And it was a fascinating scenario, wasn't it, really? It was a battle of the deepest team versus, well, what could be considered the most shallow due to injuries. And I've got a stat on that in a sec. Kind of like the 2007 Cleveland Cavaliers, except with no LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> would have just been Booby Gibson and Anderson Verger and a bunch of... They weren't injured, though, were they? They were just crap. No, no, just crap. <laughs> well, they weren't, well, yeah, LeBron wasn't. But look, 
a very, very expected result, 3 nothing. We kind of called it, well, I certainly called it before the, the series started. You thought we might get one, but obviously... I did, based on the fact that they didn't sweep Southeast Melbourne and they were actually kind of lucky to escape Southeast Melbourne. Hmm. They kind of choked it away for them. So, yeah, yeah, that's why I thought Perth might win one. And the injuries deepened a lot more after you made that prediction yes, as well. Yes, they did, they did, so, yeah. But I think one of the most surprising things about that whole series was that not one game was decided by more than 10 points. And... I dare say a very small percentage of that series was more than 10 points the whole time. And this was particularly surprising in Game 3, given that Melbourne absolutely exploded out of the blocks at home. Well, it was 17-5 within a couple of minutes. I kind of felt like it was going to be a blowout. Chris Goulding hit two threes in the first 80 seconds. Yeah, he was looking good early. And you just thought, oh, this does not bode well. I thought he was a lock for MVP too. But apparently not. No, I mean, I, I certainly think Landale, whilst he didn't shoot an amazing percentage, I think his defensive presence, I think his rebounding was... Yeah, he had a 17 like, rebound game in one of them, yeah. Yeah, and he had nine, I think it was, in game three as well. So, yeah, he, yeah. he was on the boards quite a lot. So I've got no problems with him winning. Oh, they were both fitting. Yeah, yeah they both would have been fitting MVP. Far out. If the Wildcats had won the series, Kevin White would have been finals MVP. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, probably Mitch Norton, actually. But, well, yeah. I thought Kevin White played out of his skin. Ke- Kevin White was excellent. Excellent. A lot of people were focusing on his scoring. He didn't protect the ball well, as I mentioned Yay. last time we recorded. And I think some people maybe glazed over that a little bit, but no doubt he was very good. He hit some really key shots and the margins would have been much bigger if it weren't for him. Yeah. And it, look, it has to be said in game three, I think the one thing that kept us in the game and us obviously being Perth yes. was the rebounding battle. So yeah, yep. dominated early. It ended up at 50 to 35 in the end, which is still... An absolute shellacking as far as a rebound count goes. Yeah, it is. But at one stage, the Wildcats were more than double what United had. So that's the only reason, I guess, that we were able to stay in the game, extra shots. But Melbourne just got a ton of points off turnovers. And obviously, in a game like this where you're already losing your best player, you can't really afford to have turnovers. And even more so, you can't afford to allow points off them. So, look, it was a a very great effort by the Wildcats and certainly one I'm very proud of as a Cats fan. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you're the same. And obviously, I'm sure Trevor and every Wildcats fan would be very proud. Yeah, no, no, no doubt at all. It's interesting, though. So I read in the news.com.au kind of right up after game three, and I'll quote, from a COVID outbreak within the team in preseason to 11 straight road games leading into Friday night's title clinching game, United has a case to claim that this was the most difficult title to win in league history. Here's, Immediate thoughts? Here's, okay, here's where this goes from a, a clean podcast to an expletive. Yeah, game. here's where the salt comes. Fuck off. <laughs> so Seriously. So, so look. We, we read the stats two weeks ago. They played 22 of their 36 games in Victoria. Well. Might have even been 23. Uh, I mean, not even that, though. I mean, here's what. Uh, look, I don't want to diminish the championship. Every championship is a good one. Yeah. Melbourne should be very proud of themselves. They played superbly well. They deserved it. Apparently all but one of their players got COVID pre-season, which is not something I'd heard. I don't know. I haven't verified that, but I have heard that knocking about. So that's amazing too, right? Hmm. Yes, they did lose their home court. Perth got the first two games at home due to COVID and they were on the road a lot at the end. So we do need to acknowledge that. So that was a fair effort at the end, albeit granted neutral court in the semis, but it was still away from home. But at the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. Whether they played a whole bunch of games away from home at the end of the season they still played nearly two-thirds of their home and away season games in the state of Victoria. And, well, this is what I want to focus on to kind of counter that idea of most difficult title in league history. Again, very worthy champions indeed, but I've got to counter that point. 
Three-time MVP and NBL champion and two-times final MVP, Bryce Cotton played zero minutes in the series. Mitch Norton played 61 out of a total 120 minutes. Luke Travers played 18 in just one game. And Clint Steindl played 13, also in one game, missing the other two. So yes, Melbourne completed a clean sweep 3-0, but they only won by an average margin of less than six points per game. It was something like 5.66 recurring or something. And they were pretty much full strength, but for Jack White. So to even suggest, I mean, I, I look, I, I don't even know. Clearly, whoever's written this for news.com.au probably hasn't watched more than two hours of basketball in their life. And it's a ridiculous statement. Look, simple rhetorical question to counter that. Where was the adversity? Okay, yes, you've mentioned they, the, road games. The, the players all had yep. COVID before the season, but that's before the season. That's not during the back half of the season or whenever or during the playoffs. They didn't lose anyone after Jack White, and Jack White was a long time ago. Oh, so. yeah, they had a lot of time, and they were the deepest team in the competition too. Yeah, so, so that, that is utterly ridiculous. I can think of a bunch where other teams were missing players and won or, yeah, had to come back from one nothing down in a three-game series. There's just Well, a- I even talked about that one in 95 when Perth lost game one at home and then had to win on the road to force a game three. Yeah. And I, think- I mean, you couldn't think of countless. If you just yeah. look through the record books. Okay. <laughs> yep. No, look, honestly, though, all jokes aside, very well done to Melbourne United. Yeah. Oh, look, get- it's good for the league when Perth isn't winning all the time. Yeah. And to be honest, it'd be better for the league if it wasn't Melbourne either, because they've won a couple as well in the last few years. But for a healthy league, we need multiple teams winning. We need it to be shared around a bit. So I didn't think there was such thing as a moral victory in NBL finals until this year. I'm so proud of the team. Yeah. Amazing effort by the Wildcats. And again, spectacular effort by Melbourne. Jock Landau probably off to the NBA, I guess. And I half, guess half their team lost in free agency. Yeah, well, do we go there first? Yeah, we can do. So Mitch McCarran signed a three-year deal with Adelaide. And look, it all happened so quick, didn't it? And and maybe it was fitting, because I know on the NBL Pocket podcast, and again, a shout out to them, Joseph actually got in touch with us privately a while back. So big thank you to them. He said it was a fitting end to the season, and it just kind of petered out. And Andrew actually said there were no bragging rights for Melbourne. And there's probably very few, which mm. for the reasons we've just mentioned. But one of those things that really bothers me about modern sport is no one has any time to celebrate. No one has any time to let the dust settle on the silverware. We jump straight into what's happening next. So I remember one year when the Spurs won the championship, my folks were in the States and I asked them to get me a copy of the Sports Illustrated magazine that celebrated and documented the finals. And what's on the front page? A picture of Jason Kidd in a Spurs uniform because there were rumours they were going to trade Tony Parker for Jason Kidd. So I hate this. It's like, can we just let the team enjoy the win? But this year it actually felt fitting because of the way it petered out at the end and just, yeah, it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. And so, yeah. Free agency is here. Yeah, and as we mentioned, yeah, they've already lost Mitch McCarron. Uh, Sam McDaniel went across to the, the new Tassie. team in Tassie. Yep. So they've lost two of their, their starting five already from that final series. And Tassie have pinched Magnay and Steindl from the Wildcats and nearly pinched Mitch Norton from the Wildcats too. Yeah, the Magnay one's not officially set in stone, but no. it looks all but ready to go. Jack McVeigh's gone down there from Adelaide as Which well. Which is a great, so he was their first signing. The Jack Jumper's first signing was a guy he's called Jack. Jack. Yeah, and, he, and he can jump pretty well. So. Oh, he's, he's very charismatic. I'll love to see what he does in the community. I think he'll be a great ambassador for the team. That's an excellent signing. I really like So look, there have been some really great sort of re-signings, I guess. If you look at Sydney, they've re-signed Xavier Cook. They've re-signed Jarrell Martin. There've been a few other guys like that that have re-signed. And we haven't seen the best of Martin yet. 
Absolutely. When he's healthy, he's a beast. Yeah. So I think Sydney will be much improved next season. Yeah. And Majok Majok just re-signed with Perth. Correct. Oh, the other big one, of course, is Yanni Wetzel going to the breakers. New Zealander by birth, I believe. So a big coup for them. I think that was a three-year deal as well. So mm. that's a good signing. wonder if that possibly indicates that Colton Iverson might be heading away. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. yeah. Kind of odd if they had both of those guys. Yeah. And look, big ups to Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. Okay, yes, they've lost Wetzel, but they've re-signed Ryan Brokov, Isaiah Liafa, Kyle Adam and Mitch Creek. They've all... Retaining the core. All recommitted. So... Yeah. They obviously understand how close they were this season. And if they can get a pretty decent big guy, I think they could run it back and certainly make a decent run at the championship next year. Oh, absolutely. Now, the other thing we haven't discussed yet, Stewie, is the Gazies. It's all fairly straightforward, isn't it? There's probably not a hell of a lot of surprise. I mean, referee of the year, Chris Reid, I think that was... uh... (laughs) Well, referee of the year in the NBL is a contradiction in terms. Yes. Uh, There's been some rumblings that they're going to try and improve the state of referees in the NBL and have more full-time roles and that sort of thing. I'd like to see some ex-players like Hayward Workman in the NBA, for example. I'd like to see some ex-players be refs in the NBL because... Phil Smith. Well... (laughs) Maybe not. Be, maybe not the general. He'd be great. He'd be great. <laughs> but but I think that would be good for the league, and I think it's good to have much like former players are often coaches because they know they've been in the front line. I think it might be good for them to try and recruit refs from that pool as well. But no, look. Aside from that, we kind of guessed most of them. Bryce Cotton MVP, fairly obvious one there. Same with Josh Giddy as rookie of the year. Justin Simon as defensive player of the year. I think most people probably had him. Probably one of the closer awards in terms yeah, of... Yeah, 1-1A one one with Mitch Norton. And it yeah. would have been nice if Damo had presented Mitch with the award in his name as almost a literal passing of the torch. But Simon was excellent. He was excellent in those semis. I have no problem with that at all. Yeah. Sixth man of the year, Joe Luala-Chul. I, I don't think anyone has a problem with that. He was sensational off the bench for Melbourne United. Pretty unstoppable offensively down low. Very tall. Yep. Yep. Sam Froling, most improved player. Again, I think you had him for that. I, I think him or Hunter. It was Again, that was 1 and 1A as well. Yep. I think they both had superb seasons and they're both good young big men for Aussie. Yep, coach of the year, Trevor Gleeson. That was, you know, not a surprise, but it's always nice to see Trevor getting the recognition for what he does and, and what he's achieved for a team that most people had picked, including us, not to even make the finals. And it's his first coach of the year with the Wildcats. He did win one with Townsville, yes. but it's his first ever with the Wildcats in spite of all those championships. And I think the way the finals played out, given how close it was, yeah. I think justified that selection. I actually find Dean Vickerman might be a bit overrated. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I think he was a deserving winner. Look, I think someone with Melbourne United who isn't overrated, though, Mark Boyd, won the executive of the year, had a a great year, put together a sensational roster. Super deep. So, look, well done to to Boyd and everything that Melbourne United have have achieved over the last 12 months. Now, there's rumblings they might have spent double the soft cap, but I suspect the Wildcats... (laughs) been a bit over the soft cap too. We're not going to get involved in that one. (laughs) Let's let that one go through to the keeper. Now, the other big one finally in the NBL is the Wildcats' ownership. It's still very unclear if they have to divest their ownership in United or not. And it's complicated because it is an ownership group rather than one individual. We might see how that plays out more over time. Yeah, I think it's probably still early days. But the Cats fans aren't happy about it. I've been following that on Twitter and Reddit. Yeah, they're, they're still not very happy about it all. So there's a couple of obvious transitions from the NBL to the NBA. Tory Craig, former Brisbane Bullet, who averaged 15 and 8 in 28 games for the Bullets in 2017, also winning Defensive Player of the Year, is going to win a championship ring no matter what because he played for both Milwaukee and Phoenix this season. He's this season's Dion Waiters. Yep. Or Anderson Varejao. There's been a few over the years. I hate this rule. It's crazy. 
So he hasn't played with them since March when he was traded for cash. Yes. And he's going to get a ring no matter what. I hope that Phoenix win it so that he actually gets a legitimate ring. Well, we'll get there. I suspect they probably will. But yes. The other obvious one is John Mooney. So he played for the Wildcats and we saw a lot of him. I saw all but two Wildcats games this season. Admittedly, two losses. I decided to not go back and watch. So we're decent authorities on a scout for him. He's been signed to the Bucks Summer League team, but apparently also the Utah Jazz are sniffing around. What do you reckon? Would he make a good pro? It's hard. So I think his, I don't want to say lack of athleticism. I think he is a decent athletic player, but in terms of the NBA world, I don't know if he's quite athletic enough. And I'm not sure really if his range is going to go quite far enough for him to be a stretch four. So look, he's a great professional. For someone his age, he I mean, he comes across as being far more mature than a 23-year-old. Oh, he's mature beyond his years. And his professionalism as well and playing within the system and deferring to stars like Bryce Cotton is what I think will put him in good stead in the NBA. So he averaged 17 and 11, had countless double-doubles, nearly won every game. The highest rebounder in the competition. That's his biggest strength for mine, his rebounding. I think his back-to-the-basket game needs work. It does. I think his face-up game's decent. I think he has enough range to be a stretch for in the sense that he doesn't fall in love with the three. So he takes good shots when he's open. So I think he'd be a serviceable pro in the NBA. So, you know, 15 minutes a game, getting lots of rebounds, sitting in the dunker spot, playing fairly honest defense, playing decent help defense. He'll, I think he could he could help a team. He'll be a really good guy as a secondary option. So yes. one thing we found out in the final series is that when he is the primary guy, he struggles. Yes, but if he is surrounded by a Bryce Cotton or obviously in the NBA, there's going to be countless guys. Who well, that's right. So if it's Utah, Donovan Mitchell and those sort of players, if it's the Bucks, Giannis, Middleton. So he's not Drew, going to be us. Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday. <laughs> well, he's not known for his scoring. He's, sure. he's had a few good games in the playoffs scoring-wise. True. Uh, he's never going to be expected to be a star in the NBA. And that's why I think he could be quite a good pro in the NBA. So I I think he could help a team. I was very bullish on him early in the season. He did taper off a little bit at the end, but I do still think he could be a good pro in the NBA as an honest backup doing that blue-collar stuff that teams need. Kind of think of him maybe as like a poor man's Mason Plumley. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Not as good a passer as Mason. Maybe not quite as as bouncy, but... That sort of guy. He's going, yeah. to, he's going to make good decisions most of the time. Absolutely. So first of the NBA conference finals that we're going to talk about is the Eastern Conference. So we had the Milwaukee Bucks defeating the Atlanta Hawks in six games. Yes, we've had an entire conference finals for both sides <laughs> since our last proper recording. And I think, look, I, I think every game can kind of almost be summed up in a sentence. So game one was the shimmy game. <laughs> Trey Young had 48 and 11 to upset the Bucks in game one, including that little shimmy at the top of the key before he hit that three from front on. So the first game in NBA history in terms of conference finals with 45 and 10 from one player, he killed him in the pick and roll. That's what it was. It was basically he was either getting wide open looks for three when the guys were, were switching on to him or he was finding guys roll into the basket. It's, yeah, the shimmy game, is a that's a great name for it. Game two is the everyone plays game. The Bucks steady the ship in a 34-point blowout on the back of a 20 to nothing run in the second quarter, which means that both teams played 15 players. 30 guys suited up in that game. This was the ultimate game of making those adjustments. So obviously, as I just mentioned, the Bucks got killed in the pick and roll in game one. Game two, 
everything collapsed. As soon as Trey Young was getting into the lane, the defense and the zone around him just kind of collapsed on him. He had nine turnovers in that game. So, yeah, they were just getting easy runouts. It was like watching the same play on loop. Trey Young gets into the lane, tries to force a pass out, turnover, Bucks layup. And it shouldn't have been a revelation by this stage that, hey, make everyone else beat you. <laughs> Collapse on Trey, yep. make everyone else beat you. Yep. Game three was the Chris Middleton fourth quarter game. So he had 20 in the fourth, outscoring the entire Atlanta team who only managed 17 in that quarter. Trey Young scored 35, but he stepped on a ref's foot and it did kind of change the whole series or it certainly set the series much more towards a Bucks win. And the thing is, the Hawks couldn't have asked for a better start to this game. Inside four minutes, they were up 15-2. to two. Giannis had two fouls. They were up 25-10 to 10 halfway through the first quarter. They were absolutely cruising. Trey Young was starting to attack from different angles as well, so he wasn't giving the Bucks the same looks, which he was, he was doing in game two. So they weren't able to collapse on him in the paint. But yeah, then Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday stopped settling for threes and started getting into the paint and getting better looks for themselves. And yeah, as you say, the, the Trey Young stepping on the ref's foot moment was catastrophic for the Hawks. Game four was the Lou Williams game. I think it was his first ever playoff start. Atlanta outscored the Bucks 25 to 8 after Giannis had an injury of his own, hyperextending his knee in the third, and boy, it did not look pretty, did it? <sighs> I don't know how he hasn't ended up with a, a torn ligament or something worse than just... Well, it's, it's possible he has, and they're keeping it secret. Mm, not true. a lot has come out. We don't know. They could be foxing with Phoenix to try and make them true, game plan for true. it. True. Luke Budenholz has said that it's looking good. I don't think he'll play games one or two. He may be back for game three, but look, you're right. It could very easily be he's done for the season. We might not see him till this time next year. Oh, it was an ugly-looking injury. There Very was. ugly. And you kind of thought at that stage that, well, maybe that's the series over for Milwaukee because... Well, that's what kept it interesting, wasn't it? Even though Young was injured, Milwaukee now have their best player injured. Oh, this yeah. could still go seven. And, and Trey was always going to come back. It's just a case of when and how good he was going to be. How effective, yeah, yep, yep. Game five is the Brook Lopez game. So Brook had 33 points on 14 of 18 shooting. He also had four blocks. The starters scored 111 of the Bucks' 123 points. Yeah, look, it's worth noting that they got a massive game out of someone like a Bobby Portis. who He was excellent the whole series. Oh, crazy eyes. He had, yeah. A, yeah, had a cracking game. And he barely played prior to this series. I think the biggest stat from that game, though, that was really damning for Atlanta, points in the paint, 66 to 36. So yeah, plus right. 30 for well, Milwaukee. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a huge stat in most playoff games, but this is just an absolute shellacking. And then finally, game six was the Chris Middleton third quarter game. So Chris scored 16 straight in the Bucks' 44-point third quarter. He had 23 in total for the quarter to put Atlanta away and reach the finals for the first time since 1974. So the Bucks actually won and made finals in two of their first six years. And they're probably thinking, oh, this is pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> but now <laughs> it's the first time since 74 they've made the finals, yeah. punching their ticket. And Middleton, geez, when he catches fire, he is mm. almost unstoppable. He's got such a quick release and it comes from a fairly high point as well. So he's able to get it off over bigger defenders at the drop of a hat. So I think he is going to be incredibly important for them in this final series if there'd be a chance of beating the Phoenix Suns, who we'll get to in a minute. Oh, and what I loved about this game was he's just a ray of moves. He had a running hook. He had a nice little post move. He was hitting threes from the corner. He just did it all in that game. It was a pleasure to watch. Absolute pleasure to watch. Yeah. 
And look, just quickly for the, the Hawks, Trey Young joined LeBron James as the only players to average 28 points and nine assists in a single playoff run of at least 15 games in his first playoffs at 22. Oh, yeah. It's super impressive. Huge future. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how the Hawks rebound from this in terms of what sort of personnel changes they make, who they re-sign, how they improve, I guess. Yep, absolutely. So the Bucks will be playing the Phoenix Suns, who dismantled the Clippers in six, but it was a very gallant Clippers who had neither Ibaka or their best player and one of the very best players in the league, Kawhi Leonard, for most of it. Yeah, so the last time we recorded, the Suns had taken game one. Game two was an absolute beauty. In sticking with your theme of calling these games, this was the value game. Oh, yes. That's so, the value yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, even though the last 90 seconds of that game took 33 minutes of real time, this was a cracker. We had a ton of reviews. In fact, they had the same amount of reviews as field goals in the last 90 seconds of the game. But all the reviews weren't necessary. They were all incredibly close calls. It had to be done. But this game came down to one of the craziest and smartest play calls I've seen. Now, I actually love this because the Suns ran a similar play in 2017 against Memphis. There was six tenths of a second left in that game and Dragon Bender threw a lob to Tyson Chandler right over the top of the rim because the Suns knew that off an out-of-bounds play, there is no offensive basket interference. I'm surprised how many people were surprised about this. It's just common sense. Yeah. You can't score off an inbounds pass. So therefore, obviously, it's not a shot. Yep. So obviously, it's not offensive goal. I was amazed at how many people didn't realise that. But, you know, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier in the year, the value of someone like Jay Crowder, who has been around. He has all of that experience. He's a really smart player. He makes the right call at that time. And knowing that DeAndre Ayton could outjump anyone on the Clippers. Yep. And Ayton had a number of really big alley-oops. It was a very, you're right, it was a long game. But it was a very entertaining game. Very entertaining. Now, this alley play was a far cry from Anthony Davis's three-pointer last year to beat Denver in game two. But how's this for a crazy similarity? Game two, home team down by a point. Game winner by a centre. Over a centre from the Balkans, who was a second-round draft pick. (laughs) Wow, okay. The centre that hit the shot was a former number one draft pick, (sighs) whose initials include A and D. Both gave his team a 2-0 lead over a team that had never made the NBA Finals. And Game 3 went to the other team. And game 4 then went to the higher seed. Well, so coincidence of plenty. Absolutely crazy. Well, that's great. And it's got to be said, hats off to the Suns who won both games without Chris Paul, including Game 1. Devin Booker picked a pretty good time to have his first ever triple-double. Yep, he did. <laughs> so they were 2-0 at home without Paul, which was a good effort. So Game 3 obviously was the return of Chris Paul. And unfortunately for Devin Booker, it was the unveiling of his mask because of the headbutt from Patrick Beverly. Seriously, fuck that guy. I can't stand him. <laughs> I've got to say, I really enjoyed watching him this playoffs, actually. Oh, I can't stand him. I don't, I don't love him, but uh, he, he made it interesting. He made it very interesting. And all of a sudden, it kind of looked like it had changed everything, though. The backcourt of Paul and Booker combined for the equal third worst field goal percentage from a starting backcourt in the last 50 postseasons with a minimum of 40 attempts. Wow, okay. Just 25% from the field. They were terrible. So can we talk about that Beverly foul quickly? So who is it? Was it Crowder or someone or Aiton? Someone big has set a screen. Paul's kind of scissored his legs. Beverly's tried to go through the screen and Paul's gone to the line for three. They've called it a flagrant. What do you reckon? 
Yeah, I don't agree with that personally. I think it was an unfortunate circumstance where I don't think Beverly actually knew. And I'll be the first one to put my hand up and say if I think it is because I don't like Pat Beverly. But you made that clear. I don't think that he had any idea where Chris Paul was. So I don't really think there was any intent at all to run underneath him, knock him to the ground, hurt him, any of that sort of stuff. It's just incredibly unfortunate. I agree. I watched that footage. I reckon, no, no exaggeration. I reckon I watched it about 25 times. And I think you're right. I think Paul hadn't started shooting yet. So in that, for that reason, it can't be a flagrant for mine. He was just fighting through a screen and Paul knew a foul was coming, which is why he shot, which is what so many players do in the modern NBA these days. But there was a play earlier in the game that is also really important for mine. So Boogie was straight up and down. And by the way, speaking of Bobby Portis in the other series, Boogie had some pretty impressive minutes or some purple patch quarters, <laughs> let alone games, just, just quarters. But there was one where he was straight up and down, did absolutely nothing wrong. And Paul contorted his body, scissored his way into a foul and went to the line for it. And it absolutely shouldn't have. He established the contact. And these are the fouls I absolutely hate. And that, to me, is all the more reason why it shouldn't have been a flagrant because Paul does that shit all the time. Mm. Look, let's get straight back into game four. Ga- game four, look, firstly, the Clippers should be fined as an organisation for those those silvery grey uniforms. They wore. <laughs> and look, they were perfectly fitting for how ugly a game this was <laughs> for, the, for the most part. I mean, it was one of those ones where you can have an exciting game with teams missing the vast majority of their shots. I mean, this one, if, if you look, the teams combined to go nine for 51 from three. The Clippers were five of 31. Paul George, one of nine. Reggie Jackson, two of nine. The Clippers actually went six minutes and five seconds without a single point at one stage. This one was hard to watch, certainly for most of the second half, I will say. so. But this was the game when it became clear to me that DeAndre Ayton is actually the Suns' most important player. Now, oh, he's super important. Now, it's not to say that he's their best player, but he's definitely their most important. 19 points, 22 rebounds. Oh, beasts on the boards. Absolute beasts. And the percentage that he's shooting is just almost unheard of. Yeah, they are video game numbers. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I this is I think this is the point where I actually realised how much I love DeAndre Ayton as a player. I always admired him. I always enjoyed what he did. But this was, yeah, in the midst of all that ugliness, he was... And just a shining light. I want to take this opportunity again to say he reminds me of what Great. Greg Oden could have been. Yeah. He, he even kind of moves like him. There's some, there's some physical similarities. But, it, yeah, just uh, that's that's kind of what Portland were expecting Greg Oden to be if he wasn't made of glass and didn't have one leg longer than the other. Yep. No, Aiden's a joy to watch. Yeah. As is this Phoenix team. Now, game five, it's kind of hard to put a name on it. You kind of want to put the Paul George game on it, but it kind of almost was the Marcus Morris game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's had an up and down playoffs, but when he's played well, he's played very well. But he was six of six for 13 points in the first seven minutes of the game, 20 points in the first half after only having 25 in the first four games. He kind of set this game alight early and it was the role players. It was Morris. It was Reggie Jackson, DeMarcus Cousins. They had 44 points at halftime on 18 to 28 shooting. This was the only game the Clippers actually won the points in the paint. They were plus 26 in this one, and they won the game easily. And then Paul George went mental in the second half and finished with 41 and 13. And it's the role players and the veterans that have made it still quite an interesting conference finals for the more hardcore fans like us. 
So a lot of the casual fans probably stopped watching once Trey and Giannis went down in that series. And, you know, they might not have watched games one and two without Chris Paul, for example, which would be a shame because game two was an absolute all-timer. But guys like, I mean, Reggie Jackson, he has a career average of 12 points per game. He's averaged 18 this playoffs. Jay Crowder's really useful. Boogie Cousins has had flashes, as we mentioned. Campaign's been excellent. And and he's been part of a reason why when you talk about some of their other players struggling, the role players have lifted up the team. He blocked Boogie on one play. Yeah. Very impressive. <laughs> so, yeah, so so as a, as a hardcore fan, it's still been a really interesting conference finals. Yeah. And just quickly going back to Paul George and how good this game was, only LeBron James, Patrick Ewing and Wilt Chamberlain have had 40 and 10 on 70-plus percent shooting in an elimination game. Yep. He was spectacular. Yep. But it was short-lived. No more way off pay. Well, not, not, <laughs> not for that game anyway. But no, then obviously it all came crashing down in game six, which was an absolute blowout. It's actually the first time the Clippers lost this postseason when Marcus Morris shot 50% or more. Wow, okay. Eight and one. But yeah, how's this for, for a crazy little thing? In 2018, Chris Paul had a chance to make his first conference finals. Oh, I saw this one. He scored 41 points with no turnovers. Yeah. In game six, he had the chance to make his first finals. 41 points and no turnovers. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. It is, it is. And he just, he controlled everything about that game down the stretch. I think when he came in, they were down by seven. And then a few minutes later, he'd gone on this ridiculous run where he had like 20 something points. And he had, well, he had something like 30 or 32 in the second half. Yeah. It was amazing. They couldn't stop him. He would get to his spot. He would, he was hitting threes over guys' faces. And then it just resulted in one of the most childish ejections you'll ever see. Oh, Beverly. Yeah. Yep. And yep. again, I stand by it. He's a dickhead. Yep. And by the way, during the reviews in, I think it was game two, when he was sitting on the scorer's table, it's like, could you be any more Ron Artest-like? Yeah. <laughs> Meta world piece, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that was, a, that was a cheap shot. Absolute cheap shot. It yeah. was. I'm actually disappointed that no one stepped in, though. Like, if Well, they, they don't want suspensions heading into the finals. They've just won by what? It was a blow. It was more than 20. Oh, yeah. They, they've just won by a lot. They don't want suspensions. But a lot of people forget, he actually pushed Devin Booker in one of the games as well. Mm. Granted, it was face-on rather than in the back. But, he, yeah, he had a few cheap shots throughout the series. If I'm Dario Saric, I step in and I give him a shove. I, I, take, a, I take a flagrant one or a technical or yeah, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. You know, I don't hurt the guy, but I step in for my, my player in, in Chris Paul. That, that disappointed me. Speaking of veterans, good to see Saric play some valuable minutes too because I thought he's been a bit disappointing earlier in the playoffs. And also Zubac for the Clippers. We've kind of been pretty hard on him throughout the playoffs, but he gave them some really valuable minutes before he got injured too. He, he did play hurt as well, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, look, it's it's tough. But there is a bit of fallout from this potentially. Paul George, 0 for 6 in the series on game tying or go-ahead field goals in any fourth quarter. If you take out his game five explosion, he shot 36% over the other five games. Yeah, okay. So really not great. I mean, look, he was probably gassed and he played that many minutes. Oh, yeah. He, he played nearly 42 minutes a game, I think, on average. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is, I mean, he's expected to do that. He's paid max money. He's the second star. He did what you expect of a star. So I don't think we need to get too excited about him because <laughs> he lived up to expectations yeah. to a point. Bringing those free throws in game two wasn't very good. It wasn't helpful, no. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the thing, I guess, you know, you've got to couple that with Kawhi Leonard not playing in the series. I found it interesting that he watched a couple of those games from the box rather than from... Oh, the how, how was the Mike Brain call? Did you see that? 
Which one? Oh, so Kawhi's at the game, and I can't remember what happened, but the camera goes on onto him, and Mike Breen goes, oh, and Kawhi goes crazy, or something like that. Oh, and he was he, being he sarcastic. Did, he did nothing. Yeah, <laughs> being completely, because yeah. he was just deadpan. Yeah. Oh. But how's this, though? From all accounts, he was unhappy with the Clippers' medical staff feeling that they had mm. misdiagnosed and underplayed the extent of his injury. Mm. Sound familiar? Deja vu, yeah. Sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. So at what point do teams start looking at this sort of stuff and think, is he actually worth it? He's a total diva. Well, there, there's all those stories about him catching helicopters from San Diego, holding up team flights. He's difficult, mm. but he's also very good. He's one of many stars that are a complete pain in the ass, isn't he? I mean, half of Brooklyn. There's already word that he goes to Dallas or Miami next year, which would be great for the Oklahoma City Thunder. We can get all of their... Well, I'll tell you what. If that happens, I'll be amazed because the the narrative always was that he wants to be in California so he can be close to San Diego. So if he does bail after only two seasons... It would be weird. It would be weird. A couple of other things quickly. Marv Albert's last ever call. Yes. 55 years. He commentated Wilt Chamberlain games. Mm. One of those famous calls, a spectacular move, you know. From the 91 finals. The the old one that every kid did in the playground, not only mimicking Jordan's move, but also mimicking the commentary while they did it. So it's it's a bit of a shame that his last game was a blowout. It was a bit of a fizzer. And then the other one is Steve Barmer. So he basically nearly choked a bloke in celebration during the previous series. In this series, he was rubbing those guys' uh, thighs very vigorously. Did you see that footage? Thankfully not. <laughs> Pretty funny. Oh dear. All over Twitter. Like, everyone's using it as a gift meme now. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. well, All right, we're going to get on to this grand final. Phoenix and Milwaukee. So I have to say, this is the most excited I've been about a final series since the Spurs and Pistons in 2005. Phoenix never won a championship. Milwaukee last won it in, what, 1971? Yep. Phoenix won both games in the regular season by a point. One of which went to OT. This was the best possible result. The big if in this series, obviously, is Giannis's health. He owned the Suns in both of those games, 80 points at 60% from the field. He even shot nearly 84% from the line in those games. The Suns don't really have anyone who can go with him that well. Maybe Jay Crowder, but he's undersized. So, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting series. This Phoenix obviously want to play a ton of pick and roll. Milwaukee kind of figured out Atlanta's fairly quickly, but... Chris Paul's a whole different ball game there. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on this series? I'm really worried about that injury. Speaking of Jay Crowder that you just mentioned, so he's played six games in the NBA Finals <laughs> last nice season. Yeah. yeah. It is the third lowest behind the 1947 Stags and Warriors series, Stags, whoever the fuck they were, and the 1977 76ers and Trailblazers series that had zero games finals experience. And the league was much younger in both of those instances. And it is worth noting that Crowder is the only one in this series that has any finals. That's yeah, exactly. Those six games last year, that's it. No one else has played in it. Yeah. So so that's interesting. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying in the NBL about it's it's good for the health of the league when new teams are winning. Or not new, but you know what I mean. Teams that haven't won for a while. Oh, Stewie, we were so close to a hurt of pain cup. (laughs) Kevin Herter for Atlanta and campaign for the Suns. Yeah. Anyway, I look, I'm going to pick Phoenix in seven. They'll probably win in less, but I'm just leaving the door ajar for Janus to come back. I'm basically picking Phoenix on the basis that they're healthier. That will separate it for mine. That's fair. I've got the Suns in six. Uh, they could actually go from the worst record in the West to champions in two years. I've got a couple of little things to kind of round this off. 
DeAndre Ayton joins Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan, Kenyon Martin, and Kyrie Irving as the only number one draft picks to make the finals in their first postseason, ah. which I thought was kind of cool. Yep. Sadly, this is the end to the 37-year streak of a <laughs> former teammate of Shaquille O'Neal playing in the finals. Surely a streak that will never be bettered. Ah, uh, yes. And I'm going to finish up with a tweet from several years ago that I thought were kind of scary. So, Oh, I've seen this one too. There's a tweet from a guy named Jarrett Plummer from 2016 that said, 2021 NBA Finals, Bucks versus Suns, Game 7, Bucks win 123 to 115. Yeah. I wonder how close that will be. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. That would be really, really scary. Oh, that'll be crazy. Yeah. The odds of a Bucks Suns NBA Finals, if you put even probably 20 bucks on it before the season started, you would have made a bit of money off that. Yeah. And just quickly before we round out the NBA, just want to point out how unlucky these playoffs have been so far. Here is a list of the players that have been injured in these playoffs in terms oh, of key gosh. players. Yeah, yeah. James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Joel Embiid, Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Jalen Brown, Jamal Murray, Trey Young, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. With the exception of Giannis, that's pretty much an American international team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It basically uh, and, and Joel Embiid, I guess. Speaking of international team, quickly, Ben Simmons has officially pulled out of the Olympics for Australia. No surprises there. I actually did a lot of homework. I listened to a lot of Philadelphia-based sports podcasts and that sort of thing. They're not happy about it. They hate being embarrassed. They feel like he embarrassed the team. And I heard one of the talk show hosts saying that they wouldn't be satisfied if he hit a game winner in a game seven. That's how off him they are. I call bullshit on that. Well, it's interesting. Well, obviously, obviously. The other interesting thing is Stephen A. Smith had apparently this source within the team that was saying all this stuff. There's a lot of speculation that that source is Joel Embiid. Mm. So, yeah. Rumour of the day at the moment, Stewie, is an in-principle deal De'Aaron Fox for Ben Simmons. Oh, wow. Yeah, interesting. Minnesota are chasing him too. We don't normally address rumours too much, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, well, the rumour with Minnesota is D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley. Yes. So I wonder, yeah. I wonder who wins that. But disappointing, though, to see him... You know, pulling out of the Australian international team and sitting at Wimbledon all loved up with this new bird. Maya Jama. All I can say is everyone wants their partner to look at them the way Maya Jama looks at Ben Simmons because she is smitten, clearly. That's like, how, Those photos. That's yeah. how I look at a block of chocolate. <laughs> Guarantee it. I can verify that. And now, this week in sport history. June 29th, 1897, the Chicago Colts establish a Major League Baseball record for the most runs scored in a game by a single team as they destroy the Louisville Colonels 36-7 at the Westside Grounds in Chicago. What makes it particularly crazy is that the Colts finished the season at 59-73, and only a few games ahead of the Colonels. Chick Fraser, the pitcher for the Colonels, had already given up 14 runs with only one out in the third, so it was replaced. The Colts then piled on 15 runs in the eighth and ninth inning to complete the landslide, with every single Colts scoring at least two runs. Amazingly, the two teams played again the next day with Fraser again pitching. The Colonels defeated the Colts 8-7. How do you turn it around that quickly? No idea. June 29th, 1991, in one of, if not the biggest upset in Wimbledon history, Englishman Nick Brown, then ranked number 591 in the world, upsets 10th seed Goran Ivanisevic 4-6-6-3-7-6-6-3 in the second round. Ivanisevic would win the event in 2001 and win nearly $20 million in his career, while Brown finished with just 10 wins for his entire professional career and career earnings of less than 200000 Brown would be knocked out in the next round by Frenchman Thierry Champion, 
who, unlike his name, was not the champion on that year, being <laughs> knocked out in the quarterfinals by Stefan Edberg. The champion instead was Germany's Michael Stick. People forget how good Stefan Edberg was. People forget how good Michael Stick was. Yeah, Michael Stick was one of my favourite players as a kid. Brilliant player, but yeah, Stefan Edberg, superb. July 1st, 1974, NFL players go on strike for 41 days to challenge the controversial Roselle rule, named after former commissioner Pete Roselle, which allowed the commissioner to compensate a team losing a free agent to another team by taking something of equivalent value from that team, usually draft picks. The result of this was that most teams were too scared to sign big-name free agents for fear it would then cost them greatly in compensation. It took until 1977 for the league to finalise a new collective bargaining agreement, and now free agency is a free-for-all. Well and truly is. July the 1st, 1996, in a tour match against India, Hampshire's Kevin James becomes the first and only first-class cricketer to take four wickets in four balls and then score a century. What's even crazier about this is that in the four in four balls, James actually removed Sachin Tendulkar, Raul Dravid, and Sanjay Mandraker. Mm. How good is that? Forget the King of Queens, maybe the King of Lords. Ah, uh, uh, Kevin James reference. Yeah. I like it. Well, well played. Paul Blackmore Cup. Well, July 4th, 1931, the men's singles final at Wimbledon is won by American Sidney Wood Jr. after he defeats fellow American Frank Shields in a walkover after Shields, the grandfather of legendary actress Brooke Shields, succumbed to an ankle injury after his semi-final with Frenchman Jean Barotra. This is one of only two walkovers in Grand Slam final history, with Australian Margaret Smith awarded the 1966 Australian Open Championship, where Nancy Ritchie withdrew because of a knee injury in the final. Not so Ritchie for her. No, I wonder if that whole thing is why Brooke Shields was at the tennis and found love with Andre Agassi. Oh, well, it would explain a love for tennis. Splash. Indeed. Blue Lagoon. She wasn't in Splash, was she? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about movies, by the way. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, Wimbledon's in full swing? Absolutely. Pun intended. (laughs) Look, before the tournament started is kind of where we have to begin. There were some crazy big withdrawals before the first serve. Yeah. So defending champion Simona Halep was lost from the women's draw. You had defending US Open champion Dominic Thiem, as well as Rafa Nadal, Stan Wawrinka, Milos Raonic, and David Goffin, all gone. Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka. Yep. How could I forget? Yeah. So some massive, massive outs there. But then the first round threw up some absolute shockers as well. Francis TFO took out three seeds to final Sitsipas, which was a real, real boil over. And then unseeded Elise Cornet took out five seed Bianca Andreescu. So we had a couple of really, really big name players gone before day Straight away. Before day one was even over. Yeah. But the biggest disappointment was probably the state of the courts and the excess moisture. That claimed two very big scalps as yes, well. Yes, yes, it did. The biggest one, obviously, Serena Williams, who damaged her ankle. She slipped when the game was, I think, 3-1 in the first set. She managed to tough it out to three all, but... She just couldn't go. So this was against Alexandra Sasnovich in the first round, who was a very much an unknown player. It really keeps that will she break the record alive still. It's a fascinating end to There's, her career. seems to be something thrown up in All these every roadblocks. Single, yeah. Every single uh, tournament, there, there seems to be something. Yeah. Then we had Adrian Manorino got hurt at two sets all against Roger Federer in, in round one as well. This was a game that Federer called himself very lucky to get through. We even had a ball girl go down with a nasty injury over the weekend. So, like, yeah, right. I mean, what are your thoughts on them playing on these sorts of surfaces? I know Kyrgios was quite vocal in opposition to how poorly the courts were. I think for me, the funniest thing was seeing all the memes and tweets 
So, you know, there's been some great Djokovic pictures with him scaling the Eiffel Tower oh, and the next to Spider-Man yeah. <laughs> and all these ones. I saw a tweet of Coco Goff where she's basically doing the full splits and the caption for the photo basically was, I won this point. And it's amazing <laughs> that she even got up after that. I won this point. Like, it's it, it's amazing that she even, yeah, yeah it was crazy. That's phenomenal. But yeah, I, I just, I don't understand when one person goes down, especially someone with the history that Serena Williams has at the All English Club, I, I don't understand how that's not a point where they say, oh, maybe we need to kind of stop and reassess here. Here's an idea. Maybe they should prioritise the grounds rather than a strip of colour on a hat being more than a centimetre. Hey, hey, no. No. <laughs> rules is rules. Rules is rules is rules, all right? <laughs> But speaking of Serena, with her out in the first round and then Venus out in the second, the last time a Williams sister wasn't in at least the third round of Wimbledon was 1997. Yeah, crazy. Back when they used to wear those beads in their hair. The beads that would fall out. Yeah, I think it was the US Open where that happened. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, 1997, that's a long time. Wait, the movie Titanic hadn't even been released at that stage. Wow. December 97, that came out. There you go. John Howard was in his second year as Prime Minister of Australia. And there were five countries, South Sudan, Kosovo, Serbia, Montenegro, and East Timor that didn't even exist by those names mm. in that stage. There you go. This was a long time ago. Yeah. So then we move on to another polarising figure in Benoit Paire, the Frenchman. When he is on, he is an absolute joy to watch. I remember watching him serve volley once and hit the volley from between his legs. Oh, yes. One of those. Now, he lost in straight sets to Diego Schwartzman in the first round, including a six-love third set that took just 15 minutes. This was coming back after a delay overnight. He was actually given a warning for not trying hard enough with a fan even screaming out, stop wasting our time. No, he's done a Bernard Tomic. Yeah. yeah. Now, Pierre was quoted after the match saying, we're being put in bubbles when everyone in London is outside in bars drinking shots. No one is wearing a mask outside. There are spectators talking to me one centimetre away and they don't have a mask. What are your thoughts on this, Nate? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Again, everyone's playing under the same conditions, so it's not like he's the only one in the bubble. Mm. I can understand why that would bother him, but it, it, I don't know. It maybe shows a lack of mental toughness. Again, everyone's in the same conditions, including his opponent. Mate, just got to live with it. You're earning a lot of money just for turning up. Yeah, I mean... I know we always come back to the money argument, but... He does make an interesting point. And look, he did make $45,000 for losing that yes, quickly. probably serving underarm like Tommy Houston. I don't know if he went quite that far, <laughs> but yeah, he, he just stopped trying. But yeah, look, it's not a great look, but I guess at the end of the day, it is his choice. I mean, people don't have to watch the match if they're not entertained. The UK clearly has massive issues with COVID. I've been talking to family over in the UK and they're still getting... Yeah, 3,000 new cases a day. Yeah, and the new Lambda strain has hit Australia now too. I haven't heard that since Revenge of the Nerds. Lambda, yeah, Lambda, Lambda, Lambda. Yeah, yeah. my year 11 G&T class. <laughs> um, geometry and trigonometry, not gin and tonic for the record. Yeah, well, I was more likely to have a gin and tonic than do gin. Gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> the old gin and, gin and uh, tonic. <laughs> oh, shit. Falling apart. But yeah, it just unfortunately it seems like they do have a very different way of attacking it over there or not attacking it as it seems. And a lot of people are kind of going about their life as per normal when it really shouldn't be. So I kind of see where he's coming from and I, I get his frustrations, but yeah, good counterpoint. He is in the same boat as everyone else in the tournament. That's key for me. Yeah. Now sticking in round one, probably one of the most touching moments of the tournament. In fact, I dare say it will probably be the most touching moment unless Roger Federer goes on and wins the men's tournament. Carla Suarez Navarro, less than 12 months ago, she actually thought she had COVID. 
went to the doctors and got tested, came back as negative, something going on with her stomach. She actually was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma, Mm. which is pretty nasty. Now, her first thought was, how do I recover from this? How do I get back out on tour? She's now cancer-free, which is an amazing story of perseverance and obviously brilliant for anyone that can beat cancer. And okay, Ash Barty took her out in three sets in the first round, but... The very fact she's playing is impressive. Yeah, she put on a really great show and she's just a a really great story of what people can achieve if they are strong-willed. Now, yeah, okay, she's not going to win a Grand Slam. She's retiring at the end of the year, but just such a phenomenal effort for her to get back. And so many people would be well within their right to just say career's over. No, but she's going out on her own terms. That's a, that is a great story. A Good great on story. her. Yeah. And Barty's playing pretty well too, isn't she? Yep. It's just a shame that her quarterfinals against a fellow Aussie. Yeah. I mean, the draws really opened up massively for Ash heading into the quarterfinals. So as you mentioned, she'll be playing a fellow Aussie in Isla Tomlanovic. I'll talk about her in a second as well. But if she wins through, she'll play a seed somewhere between 19 and 30 in the semifinals. And on the other side of the draw, Arena Sabalenka is still in it. She's the favourite to come out of that half in the, in the two seed. But Ons Jabur, the, the uh, Tunisians, playing some great tennis right now. Carolina Pliskova is still in it. But there's a lot less seeds. And it, and it just keeps following on every single Grand Slam we're seeing. There are new people yep. stepping up to the plate in these quarterfinals and semifinals. What's the theme of this episode? New blood, you know. Milwaukee and Phoenix haven't been in the finals for a long time. So. True, true, true. And yeah, I mean... We'll forget about the Wildcats and United. But. Yeah, well. But, but even for Ash, I mean, this is the furthest she's ever been in Wimbledon. Yes, so yeah, on grass, yeah, not doing... her best surface. No, yeah. exactly right. Now, as we mentioned, Tom Lanovich will make it through to, to play Ash Barty today. Actually, I think that match is starting in a couple of hours. But, yeah, a big issue coming out of the women's draw was the, the match between her and Yelena Ostapenko. This was in the second round. Now, Ostapenko called for a medical timeout. She was down 4 nothing in the third set despite no sign of injury. Now, Tom Lanovich called her on it, basically saying to the chair umpire very audibly, you know she's lying, right? Mm. Didn't this happen at the French Open? Who was it? It feels like we're, it feels like Groundhog Day. Yeah, they're probably... Oh, I mean, there's always something going yeah. on with people calling... Taking the piss. ...bullshit time. Yeah, out, so. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it started a war of words. Now, I'm, I'm a very vocal believer in getting rid of injury timeouts. I think if you're not fit, you retire or you battle on. That's your choice. Yeah, yeah, interesting. If you look at all the other sports out there... If someone's injured, they either come off to the bench or they sub out of the game. Obviously, I know it's a it's an individual sport. Well, yeah, what happens in golf, for example? If someone's You're in, done. If someone's injured, they, yeah, they, yeah. they go off. Uh, that's, that's happened to, obviously, Tiger Woods has battled a lot of injuries Backs, over the years. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jason Day, the Australian, has had massive back issues and he's had to pull out of several tournaments. The guy we spoke about a few weeks back who got struck by lightning, yes, he went to the hospital and he came back. <laughs> Because he was able to. So, yeah. yeah, if you're not fit, for me, you retire. That's it. I Honestly, I think it's a form of cheating. Yeah, interesting right. point. So, yeah. Now, in the men's, there's a lot less drama going on in the men's. We've had pretty much up until now, you know, a few little upsets here and there. It was looking like it was heading towards a Novak Djokovic-Daniel Medvedev final. However, Medvedev's just been knocked out. I dare say, short of, I don't know, smashing a ball into a Lions person's throat, it feels like Djokovic is to lose, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. He is cruising through his matches. He's not really having any trouble at this stage. Look, there's still the likes of Denis Shapovalov, Matteo Berrettini, Roger Federer is still in it. Yep. At the moment, yeah, it kind of looks like for this new breed that the, the big moment of the quarters and the semifinals is going to be a lot for them. 
Federer's playing great tennis, but his legs haven't really been tested yet. So we don't know if he can go deep into a fifth set and keep going. So yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now. I mean, I know that Djokovic will probably get his first proper test coming up. So at this stage, Djokovic plays an unseeded player in the quarterfinals. He'll play the winner of Karen Kachanov and Denis Shapovalov in the semis, and then it kind of leads into a, a final potentially against the likes of Federer or Berrettini. But Felix Auger-Aliassim from Canada has played some great tennis as well, took out Alex Sparrow yesterday, so you just don't know. Speaking of Karen Kachanov, he had a crazy game with Sebastian Korda last night. So we were kind of following it when we were talking about preparing for recording tonight. He won the fifth set 10-8, but there was a record 13 breaks of serve in that set from the 18 games. Crazy. Yeah, and this was on the same court that Nicholas Mahut and John Isner had that classic. So well, yeah, yeah, hard Four to top that. Ago. It's pretty rough, though, for quarter. That was his 21st birthday present. Oh, wow, I didn't realise that. Yeah, con- yeah. Con- well, only he's got time. Congratulations. Yeah. The other one, just quickly, uh, Nick Kyrgios had a 46-second service game. Yes. I, I Race through that. one. He's yeah. very, very capable of doing that. So, look, there's there's been some great stuff, some really interesting stuff, some horrible stuff, a, a real mixed bag in this first week of Wimbledon. I am absolutely apt to see what happens in the second week and we shall uh yeah we shall be recording in about seven days time and we'll probably have a winner yes indeed we will now we're going to have to skip afl this week it's no surprise that we've gone over time so we'll give afl a good amount of attention next week but just quickly hats off to new zealand rain didn't ruin the world test championship there was a reserve day meaning there was play on day six now heading into that final day the crickviz predictor i think said a draw was at about 73 percent New Zealand with an 18% win percentage and India with a 9%, I think, 9-ish in that in that realm. So it was a very good outcome. Hats off to New Zealand. Obviously, they had that heartbreak in the World Cup a couple of years ago. So it's really nice that they've won the inaugural Test Championship. And what I forgot, this is actually the third time's a charm. They've tried twice to get the World Test Championships off the ground in the last 15 years or so. They've stalled at hurdles prior to this. Nearly stalled because of COVID, and the whole thing was a bit of a farce. I think England played 21 tests, whereas some countries only played like 12 tests. Mm. So the whole thing was a bit funny, but we're very glad that New Zealand won, and they were very fitting winners. Fitting that Ross Taylor hit the winning runs, great way for BJ Watling to go out, and a massive hats off to Kyle Jamison, who was player of the match. He got Coley out twice. Yeah, look, the highlights I saw of this I mean, New Zealand just ran through in that last day. It was it was phenomenal to watch. And yeah, look, the Kiwis, when they're absolutely going like that, they are absolute world beaters, as they've proven here. You could make a very strong argument that this is their best test team ever. Yeah. So we actually went to karaoke that night to support a friend who was running it. So I kept my eye on the screen throughout the course of the evening, and I was amazed that they got a result. So mm. I happened to see the wing runs as well. So, yeah, thank God hats for, off. Thank God for timeless tests. <laughs> you were, well. All right, Stu, you know what that music means. Another big episode done. What are you out for? Well, aside from Wimbledon that I was just speaking about a few minutes ago, NBA finals start tomorrow, so it's hard not to be over the top pumped about that. In the AFL, really keen to see Port Adelaide and Melbourne in Adelaide on Thursday night. Both sides are in that bracket of teams that are premiership fancies at one stage, but have kind of come back to the field. Who makes a statement in that one? How about yourself, mate? Yeah, I'm, I know we didn't talk about AFL this week, but I'm very interested in a number of AFL games, including the one you mentioned. My Swans play the Dogs, which will be an interesting one as well. I Eagle, think that's a good yardstick game. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. Oh, that was, I think it was, might have been Goldie Horn, actually. Uh, the Splash is... No, that's Mermaids. Which one's Splash?
I don't know. That was Daryl Hannah.